0: Churches have to be extremely proactive in creating community, in creating, that is, environments that are conducive to relationship building, so so that we can not just feel, but experience community. Question, why is this? Why do we have to wrestle with these concepts and go to various lengths to develop something like this, something that was so common and natural to the earlier church? It's because it was a part of their culture. And it's, I believe, largely in part because we live in an individualistic society where the individual is primary as opposed to the early church where the society was largely collective in nature and the individual was not primary. Episode 20 of the Walking Close Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Como. And in the last episode, we talked a bit about moving forward with changing our minds. If you haven't listened to that episode, I encourage you to do that before you listen to this one. But the reality is, and it's really important for us to remember this, you are where you are because you either have or have not engaged this process of changing the mind. And if you dedicate and focus your energies on transforming your mind, it will happen. Now if you remember, I, I posed the question, How what are you filling your minds with? And Because what you fill your mind with is of the utmost importance. And so what sorts of things are you reading, listening to, watching? How, how are you spending your downtime? What sorts of places are you going? The things you see, uh, the things that you're involving yourselves in, Remember, your social activities, they they fill your minds with all sorts of things. And so all of these are are important questions that we need to consider, that we need to answer. And we need to change uh, things uh, about our lives uh, if we're filling our minds with things that are harmful. uh, Think about the kinds of conversations we're having, the kinds of conversations we engage in can either help renovate the thoughts that occupy our minds, or they can feed what's already there, whether good or bad. And so maybe there are some changes that need to be made there as well. But among other things that we talked about, I talked about seeking out others. Um, That's a part of this process of what we can do. Seek out others. Because spiritual formation is not going to solely be a private thing. Uh, You and Jesus, well, ain't got your own thing going. Okay, now this is a phrase and a concept that is that is fairly new to Christianity. It has come up within our culture. It's more than just a country song. We live in a culture and have been so formed by a culture of individualism. And you, here's the thing though: you you cannot separate your relationship with God from your relationship with others. And this podcast, this episode, I want to take the time to address this further. See, because our society is mostly an individualistic society. The most important entity in our society is the individual person. Our identity comes from distinguishing ourselves from others around us. Uh, self-expression or self-fulfillment of the individual is most important, no matter the harm it may cause to other individuals or community or even to ourselves. We, we value above most things the, what uh, one writer put, the sovereignty of the individual. And we will go to great lengths to protect it, even at the expense of others. Uh, because after all, right, in a society which says, I am most important, why not? What's stopping me? Okay, There, there, are, there are, though, some undertones within our society that put the group importance over the individual. A couple of examples here, think about team sports, right? That's the reason why we say things like there's no I in team because the goal is what for each individual person to come together to work together as a group, right? In the military, what do they do when you first enlist? They do everything to strip you of your personal identity. Everyone has the same haircut. They all dress alike, etc. right? You put aside yourself for your group, for your platoon, ultimately for your country. It's interesting to note though that even within team sports what do they do they keep record of individual statistics and what happens the greatest athletes on the team are those that are glorified but what most people don't realize maybe we don't it seems to be the case at least we forget is that those stars would possibly not be as great of a stars if it wasn't for the team the individual uh, members of that team and the roles that they play and that they feel within a team as they come together and they work together, right? The supporting cast. Sure, the star, as it were, athletes, do they have maybe a little bit more talent? Are they a little bit better or maybe just have more luck? Who knows? Yes, one could grant that, the reality. They can deny you know the, the 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 athletic abilities of certain athletes, or the achievements of some, and and how they're able to rise above others. That is a reality, okay? But the reality is that we also need to face is the fact that they are a part of a team, and it's the supporting cast that actually supports and allows uh the others to rise above in so many so many instances right uh the army themselves make the appeal to the individual by saying what be all that you can be right and so there's still while there's these undertones of of uh uh you know the, the group mentality there's still uh the individual aspects that are referred to that are utilized Uh, in so many different ways. And as with most things though, we we can talk about the positive aspects of a more individualistic society uh, and the negative as well. But for our purposes, here's the problem as I see it. Two things here. Number one, because we're talking about being disciples of Jesus, changing the mind. And one of the one of the most important things that we can do is fill our mind with scripture. But here's the problem. We read scriptures through our individualistic cultural lens and the cultures in Scripture were more collectivist. This also, I believe, number two, has corrupted the way we view the church and our participation in it. Those are the two things that I want to address here. Number one, there is a book that I highly recommend you get. Um, It's called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. Chapter Four specifically addresses what we're talking about here, it addresses this individualism and collectivism, and it does an excellent job in addressing this topic. Okay, the whole the whole book, the whole work is 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 uh, I can't highly, I can't recommend it any more. Okay, it is it is superb, and it has opened the doors for uh, many things for me in uh, coming to understand more of the culture and the context. Okay, that goes beyond just what kind of food they ate, what kind of clothes they wore, um, you know, and just giving a, uh, a a a cursory or or a a really surface like painting or picture of the Bible and the societies and the cultures and the events, okay, that took place there. Uh, there's so much more going on, like the unsaids and we can just go on That's we could do this in another a completely different episode here. But I can can't highly recommend this book enough. Okay? Misreading scripture with Western Eyes. I'm gonna give you a quote. Something that's stated in chapter four. Here it is. And, and it just really hits me and it's so important and I see it as a as a as a minister of a local um church body. I see this stuff. Um, I've experienced it myself. I've been there before. Um, and uh, it, I think it's just just speaks so much into where we are as a culture and the reasons why. Here it is. If we are not careful, our individualistic assumptions about the church can lead us to think of the church as something like a health club, where members because... Uh, We are members because we believe in the mission statement and want to be a part of the action. As long as the church provides the services I want, I'll stick around. But when I no longer approve of the vision or I'm no longer being fed, I'm out the door. This is not biblical Christianity. Scripture is clear that when we become Christians, we become permanently and spiritually a part of the church. We become part of the family of God. And then they go on to say, we don't choose who else is a Christian with us, but we are committed to them, bound to them by the Spirit, and we are not free to disassociate our identities from them, mainly because once we're all in Christ, our individual identities are no longer of primary importance, key phrase, primary importance. Paul used the metaphor of a body to emphasize that all the parts belong to and depend on one another in 1 Corinthians 12, end quote. Now, immediately, our individualistic tendencies and perspective kicks in, and it kicks against some of what is being said here. But take notice of one thing that's said here, just one thing. When he says this, Once we are all in Christ... Our own individual identities are no longer of primary importance. Now, that phrase is important to note because while we all may have different talents and abilities and roles and play different parts, equipped to do different things, all those things come into play and are utilized for the greater good of what? The body, not specifically the individual person, but the body. See, we get the individual stuff, however, we oftentimes miss the collective aspects of that. And so let's think about I can leave some responses here. Your response to this might be, what well, Paul says in Philippians 2:12, "Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling." Now, I, I grant that is what Paul says. But again, we simply see this only through the individualistic perspective. Now, just a brief look at the text, will show you a little bit more. First thing to note here, this is a letter written from a collective perspective to a church within a collective society. Paul wasn't living in New York, writing to the church in California. Completely different culture. Lots of factors that, that are involved in this that we don't understand, in fact. But this is a letter written from a collective perspective to a church within a collective society. Number two, let's just look at what Paul actually says chapter 2, verse 12 of Philippians. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Notice, Paul is simply admonishing them to continue to do what they have always been doing. They were doing it when he was present with them, and they were to strive much more in his absence. And might we might say it this way, like Paul is saying, right? Don't just do this when I'm present. Do it all the time. Uh, as a parent, you may, you may think this or you may say this, right? We have lots of phrases in our society that we talk about this, like you are who you are. Um, uh, when, when you do what you do, when nobody else is around, right? or what you think, when nobody else knows what you're thinking, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We would expect we want our children to behave not just when we're present or in the room, or when they can see us, right? We want them to behave when we're not there. Paul simply is stating this: Continue to do what you do, that which you have always done, whether I'm here with you or not. But notice the language that is being used. It's collective. This was something they were doing together. Now, what were they doing together? Working out your own salvation. What do we mean by this? What is being done here? They are accomplishing. It's a Greek word. It means to achieve, to produce, uh, to create. In other words, strive to fulfill it. Now, to them, this would have been understood in a collective sense. Sure. There were individual people, but in a collective society, you see yourself as one part of the whole. You are joined, connected, and your identity is not separated from the group. Also, notice who else is a part of this collective group. God. He says, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, they are not struggling alone. God God has not left them alone, not abandoned them, but is in their midst. And it is he himself who works among them. Again, while they are made up of individual people, those individual people did not disassociate themselves from the they in order to make the individual primary. That's important to note here. You will you will see this over and over again in the New Testament. This notion that Jesus and me got our own thing going is a fairly new concept, and I believe was foreign to the New Testament. In fact, it is what has led to the notions of, give me Jesus, but you can keep the church. The church, by the way, which Jesus died for, Paul says in Ephesians 5.25. Now, I understand why and what's behind why people say these types of things. Typically, they say they're referring to the quote-unquote institutional church, and probably have a few... I would even say legitimate things to say about why they feel this way. That being said, if you are in Christ, you are in the family of God, the house of God, which is the church of God, which is the pillar and ground of the truth. We we can discuss church and what we feel, as it were, like it's supposed to look like. But the one thing that cannot be denied is that it involves a community of believers, that is, other people. That's what you're added to when you come to Christ. And your identity cannot be, and neither should we try and separate it from that. Now, another response might be, When I stand before Jesus, Paul says, I will give an account of what I have done, whether good or bad. 2 Corinthians 5.10 Again, This is true. But here's the deal. You will not answer for anyone else but yourself, right? However, what you will be answering for has everything to do with your relation to others. You cannot separate your relationship with God from your relationship with others. All you have to do is look to the Sermon on the Mount. Let me give you an example. Matthew chapter 5, and we could just we could go on and on and on with this. Matthew 5, let's just look at Matthew 5, 21 and 22. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment, or the court. New American Standard translates that, the court. And when we talk about this word judgment, as it is used here, it, it, we're talking about the opinion or a decision that is given concerning something, okay? And this idea of murder and what they have heard about murder and the command to not murder. Exodus twenty thirteen, you have the command. Deuteronomy nineteen, you have a more detailed uh, a description concerning the command, "Thou shalt not murder." Right? So this is what Jesus is referring to here. But now look at what he says in verse 22. But I, and when he says this, he's emphatic. He says, but I say to you, and these words do suggest a sense of superiority. But I say to you, everyone who is angry, listen, with his brother will be liable. That is bound under obligation, subject to what? Subject to judgment or the local courts. Whoever insults his brother, Raka, Aramaic for moron, will be liable to the council. Now, this could be equivalent to the Supreme Court. We might say that this is equivalent to, in their day, to the Sanhedrin. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire or the fire of Gehenna or the Gehenna of fire. We're talking about the Valley of Hinnom. Um, and it was referred to this because of the never-ceasing fire. It became, it, it became known as the Gehenna of fire. And this was the place, it was, it was essentially their dump. And it's like Jesus is saying, you are worthy or subject to passing through that fire. Now, obviously, my interpretation here and explanation is of what Jesus was saying in that time, in that culture, and how it applied to them. In Jewish apocalyptic literature around the time of Christ, The Valley of Hinnom is is interesting to note. Gehenna did become an image of eternal destruction. Now, at first glance, it seems Jesus is dealing with nothing more than name calling, right? Uh, But these terms carried with them much more weight in that culture. They were public denunciations, and they were incredibly insulting. If you said raka, you essentially, essentially meant, meant you were empty, that you were senseless, that you were an empty-headed man. You were, in other words, good for nothing. You a moron. You fool. It comes from a word which means dull or stupid, and it's like shut up, like, like you are shut up, and you cannot speak. You're foolish. You're impious. You are godless. It is incredibly insulting in the Jewish culture. And it was an attempt to write off someone entirely. It denied the personhood and the dignity of a person. It was like treating another human being like they're not a human being. that You're not made in the image of God. And so it's like just saying, how could you be okay with treating others who are created just like you, made in the image of God, like they are not? None. There's none of this me and God, we, we okay, but I can turn around and treat people like they're not worthy. And do we think things will be okay with us and God if we treat others this way? Right. But Jesus, listen, this is what's going to happen to you. Now Understand, you have heard that it was said you shall not murder. But I'm telling you this anger that you're OK with building up inside of you, which can lead you to doing things that you would not otherwise do, which ultimately will, could lead to murder. It's the same stuff within you that is within a person who commits murder. It's the development of this thing that you cannot be okay with it being inside of you. Now, notice, it's all understood in the context of relations. And you think that you can treat your brother this way, your sister this way, another human being who is made in the image of God this way, and things be okay between you and God. No, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day. Now, we have to ask ourselves the same questions, right? Do we think. Things will be okay with us and God if we treat others this way. No, there's a reason why the greatest commitment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then what? The second is likened into it. Love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, John goes on to say in First John 4, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he goes on to say, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You cannot separate your relationship with God with your relationship with other people. First Corinthians 13, love is personified in relationship. And notice all the things that love is, that it does, and it doesn't do in that context is in the context of relationship. That is, other people. One more, James 2. In order to illustrate how faith works, it is done in the context of relationship. Look at what James says, James 2.14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You cannot separate your relationship with God from your relationship with others. Again, we could go on and on and on, demonstrating from context to context, and how we we cannot separate our relationship with God from our relationship with other people. It's it'd be, it's helpful. Listen, see it as a triune relationship, and, and now when it when it when it comes to transformation, I I understand largely transformation is viewed as a personal journey, and. Individual people are on the journey and can be in various places. But here's the thing. They're not alone. And it is unhealthy and, I believe, detrimental to see ourselves primarily through the individual lens. Think about this. Think about this. Churches have to be extremely proactive in creating community, in creating, that is, environments that are conducive to relationship building, so so that we can not just Feel, but experience community. Question, why is this? Why do we have to wrestle with these concepts and go to various lengths to develop something like this? Something that was so common and natural to the earlier church. It's because it was a part of their culture. And it's, I believe, largely in part because we live in an individualistic society where the individual is primary as opposed to the early church where the society was largely collective in nature and the individual was not primary. See, we, 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 we have to work a little harder, at least in some ways, than they did. Maybe, maybe not so much in others. To live this Christian experience to be disciples of Jesus. Some of the things that we have to go through, some of these concepts, they are counterculture to us. And while they may be countercultural to, to our society, they're not to others. And some of our Christian notions in our society are more products of our culture. And that's where I believe is me and Jesus, we got our own thing going, has come from. Now listen, this is, it's not about denying the individual. But it is about not denying the collective and and as individuals seeing ourselves as a part of the whole. There's a reason why scripture says things like, listen, honor others above yourself, right? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That's individualistic. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. In other words, the individual is not primary, and I believe that seeing ourselves as having a place at the table with the rest, that's the healthy perspective. Being being joined as, as various parts, collectively coming together, each one being a part of the spiritual house that is being built. And when it comes to being transformed, changing the way that we think, changing our minds, we, we play a role. And guiding and encouraging and challenging each other and becoming like Jesus. And I honestly believe that this is the key. And our failure to see this is directly connected to the lack of transformation among disciples of Jesus, it's because we see things through our own individualistic lens. And we don't see ourselves as one part of. The whole triune in relationship with God, in relationship with one another. We're to become, think about this, think, just think about this concept just for a second. We're to become like Jesus, being transformed to the image of Jesus, Jesus, the Son of God, part of the Trinity, into this eternal flow with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Our relationship with God is the same, it is no different as it is with our relationship with one another. There's a triune relationship here, and we have to see. I I get it. I get it. It's counterculture. Maybe a little hard to understand. Maybe a little hard to see. And even if you see it, it's even harder sometimes to live it. But it is a reality that we need to strive for, because it is the reality. We cannot separate our relationship with God with our relationship with one another. And that's all the time we have for this episode, and I'm sure you probably have your own feelings about all of this, and that's exactly what we're going to be going to talk about in our next podcast. We're going to talk about our feelings, why, why they are so powerful. And are feelings just feelings? Well, that's next time on the Walking Closer podcast. Thanks for joining me on this episode. Uh, don't forget to subscribe and share. And connect with me on the Walking Closer Facebook page. Drop me a message or any questions that you may have. Make sure to join us next time as we explore becoming like Jesus from the inside out.